Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma O'Doher and Tom Breeze. Episode 8, Mentoring Early Career Teachers with Sean Watkins and Lucy Donovan. Hello and welcome back to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching. We are joined by two very special guests today, both who who either work in Central South Consortium or have previously worked in Central South Consortium. A very warm welcome to Lucy Donovan and Sean Watkins. Welcome, how are you? Hi, yeah, all good, thanks. (laughs) Nice to be here in this fancy room. Yes, Yes, thank you for having us. (laughs) If you could maybe start just by giving us an overview of, of your current role and if you were previously in the consortium, which I know you were, Sean, what your role was there. So maybe we go to you first, Sean. What do you do now? What did you do with the consortium before? Okay, so at the moment I'm, and, and, and actually was then, I'm Principal Lecturer for Initial Teacher Education here at Cardiff Met. I'm back here five days a week, but for the f- for the previous three years, I was strategic manager for school and HEI partnerships. So in essence, I was responsible for initial teacher education across the Central South Consortium region. So that's uh, five local authorities. I'm, mm, Lucy, you may have to help me with this. But that's Cardiff, Ronsley, and Taff, Merthyr... Bridgend and the Vale of Glamorgan. Oh, I'm I'm proud. Well you done. Well. Good recall. Ten I remember. Retrieval practice. <laughs> yes, yes. So I was seconded there. So uh, three years ago for the permanently. Uh, sorry for five days a week, and then the previous the last two years two days a week. And Lucy, you've had a sort of interesting journey into the consortium. Maybe you could tell us a bit about your previous life as a teacher and what led you to the consortium and and what you do there now. Absolutely. I've been a history teacher for 14 years and as part of my teaching role took on more responsibility with teaching and learning and then became the um, induction mentor for the school and I was induction mentor for four years. And then more recently, I took on the role of senior mentor for uh, Cardiff Met, actually, as somebody was on a maternity leave. And most recently, then, I've started working for Cardiff Central South as an associate advisor for early career teachers. And it's lovely to have you on again, Sean. We haven't had you in for a little while. You were reviewing books with us, I think, last time. Yes, da- da- Daisy Crisadulo. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. that controversial episode. Yeah. But today we're uh, <laughs> talking about something you've been involved with writing, which is this report, Mentoring Early Career Teachers and Appreciative Inquiry. So I'm sure lots of listeners will be familiar with the idea of mentoring early career teachers, but they may not be so familiar with the second half of that title, an appreciative inquiry. What is one of those? So an appreciative inquiry is, as it sounds, it's an inquiry, it's just looking. But what you're doing, you're just looking for the positive. So it's an opportunity to, whatever institution you're in, to look across the board um, at where you're seeing good practice, or even just practice, to be honest, and just to focus on what's going well. And then to ask yourself, once you've gathered all that information, ask yourself, well, what could something look like if we had more of the same? And then perhaps identify some recommendations going forward. It's it's a very refreshing approach to 
research and inquiry. Um, traditionally, particularly in the education sector, we spend most of our time looking to solve problems, looking to fix an issue. This isn't really about that. It's just about looking at what's going well. Um, it's more of a carrot rather than a stick approach, I would say, to improvement. And you were using this to look at a particular aspect um, of education here in Wales, really important to all of us around this table, thinking about early career teachers, and we're using that as an umbrella term to encompass ITE students, students in initial teacher education, newly qualified teachers. And I think before we talk about, you know, what you found through Appreciative Inquiry about what works in mentoring early career teachers, I think we need to spend a bit of time thinking about what the challenges are that student teachers face when they transition, because it's quite a big, you called it, uh, when we were chatting before we started rolling, that kind of bridge that they have to cross from being, you know, gaining QTS, doing an intensive either three year or one year route to becoming a qualified teacher, but then you're on your own and you're a newly qualified teacher. So what are the, some of the challenges that you've experienced over the years that students who graduate are facing when they're coming to their NQT year? Well, when I um, started at Central South Consortium, my primary role was to look at how we can create a bridging mod- model, if you like, to support early career teachers from the student teacher experience to the newly qualified teacher. And I've got to be honest, it was particularly confused by the fact that that was a time of COVID as well. So their initial teacher education experience hadn't been the same as perhaps previous students. The biggest problem I think that we have is that student teachers, they'll they'll undertake their initial teacher education programme. They meet the standards that's required at that threshold they are used to having a mentor in the classroom they're not they're mainly accountable to themselves rather than to others there's all these sort of elements and then they start in a school and it's a new context new bunch of children they're now a lot more on their own they're a lot more accountable and that's challenging they're going from short-term lesson planning to actually now have to think about the progress of those children over the year. They're not going to see their mentor. Their mentor's not in the classroom every day with them. They're not being observed weekly. And they're having to meet the standards. Or from their perspective, they're having to meet the standards again mm-hmm. and evidence again to be able to meet newly qualified teacher years. So it's, it's a very much a stop. It can be a very much a stop-start um, problem. And I know one of the things you get uh, as a student teacher, and we, we work really hard on this on the PGC, is to try and make sure that they don't get in the bubble too much. We give mm. them two different schools to go to. We haul them out to university on a regular basis to just sort of get them back out again. And I know when I was in NQT, there was very much a sense that you, you went into a place, you were in a bubble. And I mean, you've just come out of school to that that more regional kind of view. I mean, h- how can we how can we avoid that? Right, you're here now. You do it our way. You you forget about the outside world. 
I think it's really about encouraging the individual to be reflective of their own practice rather than necessarily relying on others to support that reflection. So I think that um, the easiest transition really is when they can be quite self-directed, they are able to articulate what they need and actually request that from the context. Because as Sean said, you know, they're coming into a context where many staff are experienced and so on they see that experience and think why aren't my lessons exactly like that so it's about how they can build those structures and and manage that learning environment in this context but in order to do that they need the support to understand all the sort of systems and procedures in that specific context and i i think i mean lucy just said something really important there it's about the importance of becoming self-directed and I know that's something I'm sure we'll come back to later on is, is it's about getting them to be self-directed in the first place. That's, that's such an important part of their progression. So we'll come back now then to appreciative inquiry. We need to go back in time a little bit because something that kicked this off was a review process that was undertaken by Mick Waters back in 2020. And he posed based on the findings of that report, quite a useful question that I would imagine was a real sort of guiding question for your appreciative inquiry. And it was, how do we enable individuals to achieve a successful transition from ITE into work, maintaining the impetus of a good experience from start to end of their early career? Very big question. (laughs) But I think you really wanted to, I think you were probably convinced having had a lot of experience at this about the role of the mentor in that whole process, uh, not only of transition, but of the process of being an initial teacher education, the process of being an NQT. And so you were keen to find out what was working really well through appreciative inquiry in mentoring those student teachers over that time period. So what kind of questions did you want to ask of those individuals to find out and to address that big question? What were you keen to ask them? I think it was really about, you know, questions like what is their vision for mentoring? I think that was a big question that we wanted to ask about. We wanted to know, was there anything that they did differently with their initial teacher education students to what they did with their newly qualified teachers? How, you know, they they, they supported them in terms of where they were on that journey? what they felt was b- the the best approaches that they used to support student teachers. These were kind of the big questions that we sort of really wanted to know about. We knew within the consortium that we had several really good mentors that their names would crop up from time to time from an ITE perspective or from an NQT perspective and sometimes as well we we knew that some of the issues that we might have been dealing with with mentors were the same depending on where they were so we really wanted to know what was different what was different and what was the same and what were their strategies I think those were the big questions what's also really important you talked about Mick Waters report one of the things that he recommended which hasn't been picked up and I always think that is a bit of a shame is he he really advocated that the minute students become student teachers that they should be considered early career teachers and should be registered as early career teachers so therefore we're starting to think about them 
from the beginning of that journey all the way through NQT rather than as two separate phases. So that in itself is, was also kick-started um, our thinking in terms of talking to mentors is how much they thought about students as early career teachers or newly qualified teachers as early career teachers rather than as two separate kind of individuals does, does that make sense it really does and what was um, also striking about this report was that you hadn't just sought the views of the mentors working with these student teachers you actually wanted to ask the student teachers and the NQTs themselves what was working for them so you know based on what you've just said you're know, seeing them as an important sort of player in this whole journey and, and based on what Lucy you mentioned earlier on about you know them seeing themselves in the sort of driving seat of their progression was important so I guess you also wanted to delve into what was working for them when working with their mentors too. Yeah absolutely I think we needed to... mentors may have come back to us and said this really works that works so on but but unless we actually got the student teachers or the newly qualified teachers view we weren't going to be able to triangulate that for a starting point we needed to full, see the full 360 experience and also it was interesting to see if student teachers or newly qualified teachers responded differently mm. And I suppose that that's that's leading us where we need to go next, which is what did you find? What did you find in particular that was surprising or that you hadn't expected to find? Um, we probably should have mentioned that, Lucy, you were actually a participant in yes. this study, which I is, was. I should probably not mention that because it's anonymized. But I think for the purposes of this recording, it's OK. Anything that was surprising that came out of this in terms of the findings? I think the most the the biggest surprise for us was that it didn't really matter whether it was a student teacher or a newly qualified teacher it wasn't about whether they they were in terms of the stage of where they're at on their career journey that impacted on the style of mentoring as such it was really about who that individual was and what their dispositions to learning were and how self-reflective they were how independent they were that really had the greatest impact on the mentors approaches so in our conclusions of our, our appreciative inquiry we noted that generally on their journey early career teachers will go from being very dependent um, very reliant on the mentor to becoming independent and less reliant. But at the same time, we notice that mentors will start their journey with their early career teacher from being quite instructional and using very much mentoring approaches. But as the early career teacher became more independent, more self-reflective, more self-directed, they developed their strategies to a more coaching style. So it was... It, what it highlighted to us was that it was the early career teacher's own dispositions that was the fulcrum that tipped the balance from reliance to independence and was the fulcrum that tipped the balance from mentoring to coaching, if that makes sense. I think that's fascinating. I wonder, Lucy, maybe I'm putting you on the spot a bit here, but... What does that look like in practice? How can you tell when those dispositions have changed? Is it something that you as a mentor have influence over? And if so, what kind of strategies do you use to influence that? I 
think it's all about a person-centred approach when you meet your you know, IT student or NQT. It's about perhaps challenging assumptions you might have. For example, an IT student may come to you and they have been a scout leader or they've been a TA or potentially they've been a cover supervisor. And so they come with a wealth of experience that perhaps another IT student doesn't have. So not to make assumptions about that prior experience in the first instance. And it's about building that really positive working relationship so that there is that trust as well about sort of the student teacher or the NQT being able to say, well, actually, I'm not very confident about this aspect of my practice or I feel I've really made some you know, progress in this area and you want to be able to celebrate those successes and for people to feel that they can say that without looking like they're saying, I know everything and I've, I've got it sorted, but being able to recognise where those successes are, but also to be able to be open and honest about where they need to develop as well. I think if we just zoom out a second, I might be about to put my foot in massive controversial areas here but what strikes me about this is that we've got the the student teacher becoming an NQT we've often as you said Sean we've got the same person in school looking after student teachers and NQTs but we have universities doing the first year and we have regional consortia doing the second year we have really nice relationships between here and the regional consortia you know we second people after them and all that kind of thing but I don't know if this is insufficiently appreciative of me but are we perhaps missing a trick here. Have we got a a point of discontinuity between universities and regional consortia? Are there ways we could be doing more in each other's bits on the ground? Or does that transition work well? Has this kind of told us anything about that? Or am I just causing trouble asking that? (laughs) I I don't think you're causing trouble. I think um, in the time that I was working um, for the consortia, I think I found that there were many times where my lived experience within initial teacher education really helped with decisions about professional learning on the induction programme. I think sometimes there were some assumptions made um, that student teachers hadn't had this experience or that experience. I think it was a very smart move, to be honest, that the consortium had determined to bring somebody in from ITE. And, you know, Lucy's in from ITE now, maybe not from the university perspective, from senior mentor, because it gives a more well-rounded experience. If there's not that ongoing discussion dialogue, I think there is very much a risk that they are seen as two very separate experiences. there's got to be that ongoing dialogue. And yeah, I mean, I think there have been questions raised in the past about whether universities should be more involved in the induction process as well. But that's, I, I'm not saying any more than grade, that. <laughs> yeah. But I think <laughs> probably cause problems. <laughs> the results of this might be pointing us towards a, a discussion about that, maybe at a level above all of us I don't know I think I was very privileged because I was an induction mentor first and then became the senior mentor um, for CMU for Cardiff Met and so I do think that I learned and adapted 
based on that experience. So I agree that assumptions can be made, particularly around your own sort of training experiences as well, which in many cases were quite a few years um, prior to what the IT students now are experiencing. But I think being involved in the school-led training days helped me to um, be able to kind of build on, on that experience. And also the research champion work, you know, I, I was much more confident that they had a sense of an inquiry model, for example, to reflect on their practice. So I was able to build on that much more effectively once I'd had experience of both roles, I think. It's interesting, actually, to come through the inquiry that those induction mentors that we interviewed, because they had said that because they had been involved with the university and involved in terms of supporting student teachers, it meant that they were much more likely to use theory to inform practice or, or in, engage their newly qualified teachers in reading chapters from a book or reading articles or observing or using all those strategies that are that the university asks as part of the program they're more likely to do that with their newly qualified teachers as well so there's there's definitely a need for that joined up thinking Mm. and this is going to be sort of my next question in that it's a perennial issue that we experience in initial teacher education that we need to improve the quality of our mentoring. It comes up again and again. Mm. It's a very, very difficult one to, when you, particularly when you're working in a big partnership like ours, to control in a way and, and to really monitor very closely and feel like you've got a handle on it. Are the issues the same for NQT mentors and the quality across the board? And if we've got those same perennial issues, what can we do about them together? And what should we be going after? Is it that we need to be focusing on moving mentors from a more sort of procedural aspect of their role, paperwork, to a more educative role? We talk about them as teacher educators like us. And if so, what professional learning do they need? So together what do we think our priorities are when it comes to addressing that issue i think we need to start looking at mentor development with a different lens i think traditionally in all sorts of discussions about mental professional development or, or thinking about mentoring we tend to think about skills mentoring skills and that doesn't mean we're not thinking about the learner the early career teacher within that But still, our first thought is to what's the skills that we should be doing. What our appreciative inquiry tells us, actually, is that what we should be doing, first of all, is what can we do to help the early career teacher to improve their approach to learning first? It's just putting a different lens on it. So... When we think about mentoring skills, we think about how we can help the students get better at differentiation or how we can help the early career teacher get better at managing the classroom environment. But perhaps what we should be focusing on a little bit more is how can we help the early career teacher to be more metacognitive. Things that I know we talk about Cardiff Partnership a lot to engage in clinical reasoning because if we... It doesn't matter whether they're student teachers or newly qualified teachers until they've got to that point where they're really thinking deeply. The rest of it is just dependence. So we go back to mentoring skills again. Does that make 
Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, I've done some reading on mentoring and there's still a suggestion, isn't there, that sometimes they get picked because they're a good teacher, but that actually being a good teacher is far from enough. You know, that you've said in here about the importance of the good working relationships and actually that's not necessarily a given, is it? You know, they need to be able to do that. They need to be able to understand their student teacher and, and level the status between them in conversations and things. And, and I think from some of the reading I've done, I just get the impression we don't appreciate them enough and the complexity of their role sometimes. We don't. We also don't. I, it, they're not the be all and end all of everything either. One of the really strong features that came out of this appreciative inquiry is actually whether they be student teachers or newly qualified teachers, they actually benefit more when they are directed to work with other people and not just their mentor. So that might be working with other people within the department, in secondary schools, working across departments. That came through quite strongly that they can learn from other subjects, whether that be talking to the ALN coordinator, whether it be just be talking to an expert in the field, within the school. I think... It's about, as a mentor, being a role model, not by being the role model as being just a really good teacher, but as being a role model about how you learn and you learn from talking to others or from reading or from observing and that sort of thing. I think that's perhaps something that we've traditionally not focused enough on is how you can be a role model about how you are, you improve yourself. It did cause me to wonder, actually, particularly that sort of eighth finding about mentors embracing a whole school approach to mentoring. But I suppose the environment, the culture of the school has to be right to, in a way to allow that to happen. Some of the best schools that we work with, from the head all the way down to the mentors, they really value what initial teacher education and working with early career teachers brings to the school. I'm sure that doesn't just happen by chance. And I just wonder, I mean, I know, Lucy, you've worked in a school where that is the case. You've worked with schools where that is the case. What are the sort of distinguishing features of an environment, of a school culture that values initial teacher education and NQTs and ECT more broadly? I think it's about a culture of being open to that continuous learning, um, all teachers, not just the early career teachers, but at all levels. So wanting to be research informed of course but then perhaps a willingness to um, inquire to to try new strategies in the classroom whether you've been in the classroom for two years or 20 years to be really open to continuously learning so that actually a mentor can learn alongside an early career teacher as well so one of the ways I always like to have sort of my mentor meetings particularly one-to-one might be to say in the previous meeting why don't we both read a chapter from making every lesson count or something like that on questioning and then we'll come back and we'll have our mentor meeting next time we'll focus on questioning and I would equally go away and sort of read that chapter and think well I haven't done that for a while and I would be putting that back into my classroom practice so that I could give very relevant very current examples of what's worked and perhaps what hasn't as well in my practice and I think also when you are an induction mentor you know you might not have the same subject expertise as your early career teacher so for example your early career teacher could be from modern foreign languages um, and my background is history so not to assume that I can always know pedagogically what's right or appropriate in that subject but to be able to discuss 
that pedagogy and what might work in your context and what might work in mine and have that collaborative conversation. But you're right, it's about involving people at all levels as well. So we put together a programme where we would have all our senior leadership team would come in and they would run various sessions. Um, We would have the ALN Co, we'd have people who were responsible for the creation of IDPs, etc. And they would come in and they would talk and share their experiences. But also to have that open to all staff, it's not just early career teachers in the room, it's part of induction to our school if you've been a, a teacher elsewhere and you're joining the school. Or it might be, say, for example, you're having a session on Google Classroom and blended learning, saying to all staff, this is what our session's on. If you want to come, come along. And then you'd have a real kind of wealth of experience in the room as well to kind of share ideas and and understanding. So it's much more collaborative rather than training directed at you are new, therefore you need to learn this. I have to say that was a real, real strength that came out in the inquiry that idea of everybody's learning um, and uh, what you, you did at that school, Lucy, definitely shone out as a, as a real strength because we know, don't we, that you become a beginner at any point in your career depending what the new challenge is that, that, that comes your way. So the very fact that Lucy School opened up that professional development programme for anybody, even though it was geared towards student teachers and newly qualified teachers to begin with the fact that any teacher could join it I thought was 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 fantastic and it was really good for the students and I think one of the things that the early career teachers said that they really valued was when mentoring conversations became a two-way dialogue and that's how these kinds of things happen it was wonderful when we went through all the data because of course we we looked at all the interviews we coded everything to see a student saying they were debating pedagogies with their mentor now you might not expect that until they're perhaps newly qualified teachers but it it just goes to show they were ready for that and because that mentor was ready to work with the student teacher rather than no, you're on at the start of your placement, so therefore this is what you should be doing. They, they'd already jumped several spaces because they were actually debating and really engaged in critical thinking. Yeah, I've been really taken by the thing, I think it was ages ago, Furlong talked about moving from being a model to being a co-inquirer as someone who works mm. with, with new teachers. And I guess not in any way to do down the importance of doing modelling of, of things early on. Um, that's I guess the thing that people imagine being when they when they start working with new teachers but the co-inquire a bit perhaps on the one hand takes a bit more of a whole school shift in mindset but on the other hand is quite a nice thing to sell to a school that that's that's what you'll get from it from working with these new teachers. Of course and you know particularly if you've got for example a CP2 they've had experience in another context very recently and they're bringing in those ideas and saying this might work here or I'd like to try this with these students and so we've all still got so much that we can learn from each other regardless of whether we're in the first year of teaching or if we've been teaching for many decades. Arguably the thing that complicates that sort of aspiration to adopt that kind of relationship with your student teacher, particularly in initial teacher education, I don't know whether it's the same in NQT, is that 
the mentor is responsible ultimately for assessing the student teacher against 32 elements and QTS descriptors of the standards. So did you find any sort of distinguishing features about what the mentor in IT could do compared with what the constraints were of the role of an NQT mentor? I know that they still have to pass their effectively their NQT year, but they're not being assessed and have to meet the same sort of threshold, I guess, on a granular level when it comes to the standards as the, as they do for initial teacher education. So how does a mentor sort of square that need to put themselves as a co-inquirer, but to also adopt that space where they ultimately are going to make the decision as to whether they enter the profession or whether they don't? Difficult one, I know. I think that part of it is... Um, I mean, both um, ITE and NQT are grounded in the standards. They're at you know, different levels. There's QTS and there's induction. But around really knowing the, the teaching standards and having professional conversations around that. And I do think it comes back to those relationships, that sense of trust that you have established. The ability to be vulnerable, I think, is really important. And so whilst the mentor does have a role in in assessing and you know passing i suppose you've also want to encourage you know people to really kind of find their own own voice and to be able to direct themselves as well you're not looking to make a carbon copy of you as a teacher you want them to be able to really consider what works for them and so you know, you you want to encourage them to thrive and empower them to do that themselves. So you are trying to pass over, in many ways, responsibility. And they are professionals, you know, they've got to be seen as professionals. They are entering into um, that relationship with us all in schools, etc. So it is about really trying to build that relationship where there is that trust to be able to to navigate sometimes difficult conversations between the support and the development as well as then the assessment and and needing to meet those standards. There is a phrase that's been used um, a few times now about the standards is improve not prove and that certainly came through that all the mentors whether they were Mentoring student teachers or newly qualified teachers, they all had the same view that early career teachers should be using the standards to help themselves to improve as teachers rather than just prove that they can meet certain elements of the standards. I mean, there's there's a problem there, isn't there? Because at the end of the day, student teachers still have to meet all the elements of those standards. But actually, so do NQTs, but at a different level. So that is the same. But I think it did come through, perhaps at NQT level, because the mentoring meetings weren't as regular, the targets were longer-term targets, and consequently, they perhaps found themselves looking at the standards perhaps a little bit more holistically than perhaps with student teachers. But it was, it, it was a small difference. But those sort of longer gaps between meetings meant that that, that, that facilitated that more holistic approach to the standards than perhaps we're seeing. And that actually we would like to see more of, if I'm honest, for student teachers is seeing them, seeing them in a much more holistic way. Yeah, and that idea of kind of moving to a slightly longer term view, I suppose it's always easy, the student teachers particularly, just say, tell me what to do now. You know, and sometimes as a mentor, it's easy to kind of just say, look, just do this, do this. It kind of links to that that recommendation you made, which was really interesting, actually, this idea that sometimes 
you shouldn't give your feedback straight away. Why, yeah. why have you said that? That was a really interesting outcome from our discussions. It, it didn't necessarily come from the interviews. It came from when we were, as a team um, of mentors and colleagues at Central South, when we were looking at the data, we recognised how important it was for early career teachers to become more self-directed and and, and how we were going to help them to become more self-directed or more in control of their learning. And um, through our discussions, we we realised that one of the things that prevents them from being able to be, uh, to come up with their own solutions, if you like, is that fact that we feel like we've got to give them feedback as soon as they've finished their lesson. And when you do that, a student teacher is just waiting for that validation. Okay. I think it comes down to that coaching conversation as well. You know, the what perhaps what went well in a lesson, that if it's done so immediately after a lesson, the early career teachers can sort of panic and think, what do they want me to say? <laughs> you know, yeah. it, and they're, they're trying to anticipate that. Whereas actually what we want them to do is to critically evaluate their own practice and be very honest about, I actually thought that went quite well, but I thought that was a bit of a disaster or didn't go quite as I thought it would. And then adjust accordingly. But they need time. They do. They need time. You know, if we're honest, whenever we do anything, we need time to, to go away, maybe get in the car, drive home, think about what happened during the day before we can properly critically reflect if you have a mentor that gives you feedback immediately, that almost cuts off that reflection time. So yeah, it was a really interesting outcome or interesting recommendation that actually maybe it's not best practice to give feedback immediately. Maybe it's it's a good idea to wait a day. So there you are. I'm going to give you time to think this through. Then listen to what the student teacher or the sorry, the early career teacher has to say and then give your feedback. I think that also leaves more space for that two way dialogue as well. And it maybe goes hand in hand with another recommendation about those metacognitive conversations, encouraging them when they go away to think about your intention versus the reality. What did you have in your plan versus what played out in the lesson? Did that marry up? Could you have preempted it at the planning stage? So, you know, this this is a nice sort of link there between the recommendations. It really is. I mean, we've it's it's an age old problem, isn't it? How do we get early career teachers to plan their lessons well? Um, how do they fill in a lesson plan? It becomes about form filling. But actually, if you can have those conversations and says, okay, let's have a look at that plan. What, what were your intentions? What did you hope to achieve? Did you achieve it? Why didn't you achieve it? What, 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 what went wrong? It's a much better approach of being able to learn from experience, I think. Mm, mm, it sort of repositions it back to the teacher who was, who was in control in the first place. The plan yes. came from them. The answers about how they move forward should come from them too. Yeah. Um, and I suppose it's, it's the way that you manage that feedback and, and the dialogic approaches that is going to make potentially make the difference in them sort of being in the driving seat of their progression. That's the thing. I think when you sort of give immediate feedback, 
they focus very much on the surface level of, you know, that group of, of learners didn't complete my task or, you know, they were they were talking when I was talking rather than going back to thinking what was my intention with the learning and how much did these students, did these learners make progress or understand what it was that I was trying to get them to understand. So I do think having that time to reflect, just make sure that that reflection is is deep and, and really goes back to the planning stages rather than just that surface level of responsive to what is going on in the classroom immediately and um, your thoughts. I do also think that many early career teachers are so self-critical that they just focus on the negatives. Mm. So they think about all the things that didn't quite go according to plan and they forget to kind of acknowledge to themselves what it is that did and to celebrate those successes because they may have been thinking I really need to make sure my question is going to encourage that greater kind of discussion in the classroom and maybe other aspects of their pedagogy aren't necessarily as brilliant as they have been in previous lessons but just the fact that they are trying to do that is something that we should be celebrating and, and recognising as well. In fact that's, it's quite interesting you're saying that because this appreciative inquiry was just about focusing on successes and I think sometimes in mentoring it tends to focus on what you need to do to get better you know there's some questions here about can you just focus sometimes on what was successful why was that successful and how is that now going to impact on your future practice it's a different way of looking at things and again it, it, it goes back to that importance for the early career teacher validation of self yeah, it's really important for them that they, they they do feel validated. So sometimes a bit of a focus on success is, is not a bad thing. Well, that's a neat circle back to the very first question, isn't it? We need to be more appreciative of ourselves and our practice and our, uh, our student teachers and our mentoring and all of that. So having done this, I mean, you've got loads of really nice recommendations, really clear, really useful from your respective positions within a regional consortium and at ITE. What is your hope for this now? Is, is, is there a plan for where this goes next or how, what you would like to see come out of it? We do actually have a little plan, don't we, Lucy? I knew you do. You would. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is our transition from me leaving and, and Lucy starting at Central South. So we're going to be looking, we, we, we have some funding together to look at how we can develop questions to support mentors to help them to focus on developing students' metacognitive strategies um, to develop those important dispositions to learning to perhaps reframe some of that those mentoring conversations down that route as opposed to perhaps more traditional routes. Absolutely, so watch this space. Okay, thank you very much for helping us with that sort of deep dive into the work that you've done. You know, as a previous guest on the podcast, Sean, that we've got our two short slots. So you're going to tell us um, something interesting that arose from this project, which kind of is going to give our listeners something interesting to read. Okay, so when we started this project, it literally was done from the ground up. It was just some basic questions. The findings, actually, when we when we looked at it, as we read those, or as we came to those findings, at the same time, I came across the Beginning Teachers Learning 
book by Bern Hager and Mutton, and I know you've already talked about that. And they actually came up with very similar findings about dispositions for learning. So in terms of something interesting, I would recommend people, listeners, uh, go back to looking at this book, but also get onto the Central South Consortium website and read our appreciative inquiry because mm, it is open source isn't it it's only 22 pages long and it's available to all it is available to all yes and yes it won't take very long to read <laughs> <laughs> and lucy you've got something for mentors working with early career teachers to try tomorrow if they so wish absolutely i think um one of the key things that came out for us was about delaying feedback in order to really give the early career teacher an opportunity to think um, more deeply about their practice and to identify their own strengths and areas for development before we as mentors sometimes jump in very quickly to give them feedback to help them to uh, self-reflect in the first instance. Well, a cornucopia of useful stuff there and we will stick a link directly to the report in the show notes so you can click straight through to it. Lucy and Sean, thank you ever so much for your time. I'm sure we'll have you back again in the future um, and we'll be back with you listeners in two weeks' time. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma O'Doher and Tom Breeze. The special guests this episode were Lucy Donovan from Central South Consortium and Sean Watkins from here at Cardiff Met. Thanks to both for taking part. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. The studio manager is Adrian Raps. We're on Twitter at Talk Teaching Pod if you want to come and say hello. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Enjoy teaching.